Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Hello, I'm Kimberly Jones, curator of 19th century French paintings at the National Gallery of Art. And it is my privilege and pleasure to introduce today's program, uh, which is being held in conjunction with the exhibition Degas at the Opera, which was organized jointly by the National Gallery of Art in Washington and the Musée d'Orsay in Paris. Many of you, of course, have not actually had the opportunity to see the exhibition, although it has been extended and will be back on view later this summer through October 12th. In the meantime, you're welcome to visit the exhibition virtually by going to our website, www.nga.gov, where you can get a taste of what the exhibition is about. The exhibition, as the title suggests, Degas at the Opera, is about exploring Edgar Degas' lifelong love affair with the Paris Opera. He returned regularly throughout his career. He was a great devotee of music and opera, and the opera inspired him like nothing else. He was fascinated by this place, by its precincts, by its inhabitants, by the social world of the Paris Opera. Not as much necessarily about the performances, but the world within that space fascinated him, inspired him, and challenged him artistically and creatively. Not necessarily because of this exhibition, because we are dealing with an artist who passed away over 100 years ago, this object is inevitably retrospective. We're looking backwards. We're looking back into time, into the past, at a point in history where opera was actually considered to be in something of a decline. In the second half of the 19th century, opera was already considered an art that was struggling. It was not as powerful and creative as it had been previously. Nevertheless, it was still a source of power and inspiration for Edgar Degas. But now in the 21st century, as we look at this exhibition and we look at the work of Edgar Degas, the question inevitably arises, is opera still relevant? Does it really matter the way it did to Edgar Degas? In today's program, we will have three people who will actually review and reflect upon that question. Kimberly Drew, curator, writer, and art activist. Alicia Hall Moran, vocal artist and composer. And Amani Ozuri, also vocal artist and composer. All three of them have examined and thought about this question independently and collectively. What is opera? What are its roots? Why does it matter? How does it speak to them? And so today, they're going to share their thoughts and ideas on this very interesting subject. On that note, I will turn the stage over to Kimberly Drew. I am so excited. I'm thrilled to be in dialogue again with you two beautiful sisters of mine, having a conversation both about Degas, um, but also about the work that you both do as artists who are working in this particular moment and have been working as scholars, as creators, and as companions to so many folks who are especially um, working in the opera scene, to which I am just a visitor. Um, but for today's conversation, I thought it would be nice for us to just at first start with just a grounding, um, an introduction from each of you about what you're doing um, and what you're hoping to do, especially in the realm of opera. And whomever wants to start can start. Well, I have always considered myself a visitor to the opera. When I was in school studying to be a mezzo-soprano or a soprano, uh, flip and flop and back and forth as my body changed at Conservatory of Music, I was a visitor to that place. I'm a visitor every time I wait in that line to get my ticket at the Met. I'm a visitor in my seat. It doesn't matter if you've spent um, $15 and have a partial view, $25, or if you are, um, you know, going for it at Christmas time and somebody buys you that $325 ticket, which I spent to see Porgy and Bess earlier this year, my, or my family gifted it to me. You know, I'm a, I'm a visitor to the opera and that's why I know it matters. You know, I, I'm a classical singer. I think of myself that way. And I use my head voice, you know, I use my chest voice. I integrate the two. I have studied music in Italian and French. The, 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 my teachers have been, have been grand 
opera doms. Um, but me, myself, I'm a real traveler and a real visitor everywhere I go. And I have to say that when you came onto the call and you were like, oh, I'm so excited. I mean, that's what brings me to opera. And that's what brings me to understanding a little bit more about Degas in his opera, because it's the blend of the sound, the music, the visual. You know, in film, this is like, that's how we know to sync everybody when we want to start fresh, you know, cut and cue. We, we are kind of doing that, that together, that process of the body, the breath, the voice, the language, the narrative, the story, the place. And we all come as visitors to that. Uh, and I can talk a little bit more about that. I could also give you a list of gigs if that explains any more. But usually I find that it doesn't. That's just who paid me money on what day. That was what story was being told in what century. That was what theater it was. And I really feel that my opera is in my, in my voice, in my body, it's in my family line, in ways that are factual that I can prove from a book and in ways that go way beyond. And then opera just becomes a word with an etymology, but it's about people here. Mm. Mm. Imani? Um, for me, I feel like I'm a visitor, definitely. I don't have, um, I haven't been trained um, by any school for opera or classical music. Um, so how I enter into opera really is just the, claim it as a word or as a concept that helps me feel like I can um, make grand works that are experimental, that are expansive, um, I've been interested in opera, the concept of opera for a while, because I feel like um, as a black woman, the minutia of my life is operatic. The way I walk down the street, um, the way I engage with family members, the history that I come, the various histories, her stories, their stories that, that come, that I come through and come from me. And so it's been a very inspiring word. My first album, I called it a black girl's rock opera um, because I wanted to kind of claim the space of grandness that I feel like we don't often get to enter into and overtly name it that. And at this point in my life, I'm working on two works that I'm labeling opera um, as, to take the permission to be as experimental, as expansive if I, as I want and also grand um, because I feel like that's something that I want to celebrate in my work. Mm. Oh, I love. I love. I appreciate that um, consideration of visitorship because I always feel, um, especially in the world of fine art, which opera is definitely seated in, and the world of fine art in terms of visual art, which is the perfect intersection of this exhibition that's presented by the National Gallery, oftentimes many of us feel, um, if not intimidated, like we're on um, like we're being surveilled almost in our ability to interact and comprehend and participate. Um, so I appreciate that because I definitely, whenever I feel like I have an opportunity to speak interdisciplinary with anyone, I'm like, I don't know what I'm talking about. Like, I know what I don't know. Um, and I want to be here to learn, but it is so true um, that you know, whether we're visiting this exhibition or visiting an opera or visiting, you know, even in this, you know, anyone who's observing this dialogue is a visitor in our conversation. And um, that means that we have to do the extension of welcoming. And that means that they also have to do the work. We also ha all have to do the work of what it means to be a good guest in someone else's mm -hmm. home. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I figure, especially too, while we're guests um, here with the National Gallery, it might be good for us to dive into, I selected two from the larger group of images. And Alicia, I know that you had a full suite of images that you wanted to look at. Um, but I have to say as moderator, um, because even though I am a guest in this house, I still have a little bit of agency. I don't want to spend too much time on Degas because I'm excited to hear more from both of you. But I think it might be good um, just as an exercise to see ourselves in the exhibition and look at these two images first. So I'm gonna share my screen so that we can all look at them together and just as an informal practice of looking and 
if there are things that come up for, for y'all while we look at them, um, please feel free to chime in and share. So first we have this image of the singer. And, and I know that we all looked at this together the other day, but I wonder if you could talk, especially because this is a role that you both embody in the work and in your practices. Um, if we could start with this image, that would be fab. Well, Imani and I have been in those postures together before. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, Imani, don't you feel we could have been superimposed mm -hmm. on Definitely. these women? First of all, you have stuff in the name of love. That lady right there, I know I've been her, right? <laughs> the gown, the tip of the polite shoe, with the, the little dot ping of the pearl earring, this and the, 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 the taper of the fingers at the end. I've just had an hour long choreographic session with Amy Hall Garner, this wonderful choreographer. She said, honey, your hands are like claws. They got to be tapered and fine like you're stroking a little velvet <laughs> with the tip of your finger. You know, God bless her. She, she got me in shape for what I had to do on my job. So I feel, I feel everything these women are doing and Imani and I got to be very operatic actually on the very specific theme of Black Lives Matter in a completely self-conscious poetic way for Carrie Mae Weems, right? At Spoleto Festival in Charleston, South Carolina, which is a wonderful classical music tradition and heritage with a long running jazz component and dance as well. So, I mean, Imani, don't you see us? Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. I like this image because you can tell the performativity in the image. Mm -hmm. I like that you can tell that they are embodying a narrative or story, that they're placing themselves within a story by gesture. Um, and I think it's powerful the way it's caught, the God you know, caught that. Um, you, can, you can feel it's probably something, um, some dispute or, or someone's in fraught, someone's in turmoil, um, which I think is one aspect that opera brings to my mind that often when, when these themes are very heavy um, themes of life and death, love and loss, um, which definitely when we work with the Carrie Mae Weems project, um, that was definitely very much a part of it, especially given that we were in the town that these people had been um, horrifically killed and murdered um, under the hands of white supremacy. So when I see this piece, I see that. I also see, you know, the day-to-day -day life of walking around the street too, you know, just what it means to engage with each other, especially in this particular era, we have so many uh, protests and marches happening. Uh, I know Kimberly, you just came from a big one uh, celebrating Black Trans Lives uh, on Sunday. So I feel like, um, we could find ourselves in this gesture right now um, mm -hmm. among each other in the streets, trying to save each other's lives. Mm. Yeah, I love that. And I think it's really interesting too, especially because I believe this is an image of a rehearsal. Um, mm -hmm. And so there's also the ways in which we think about what it means to perform amongst ourselves mm -hmm. before getting out into the world, which is so much and so on topic with protests as well, where you're thinking about the logistics and safety and communication. And even in this moment where there's, there's maybe tension because you see you know, one person kind of shying away and one person moving forward, um, there's still, we still have to find ourselves in alignment um, if we're going to be moving in the best interest of each other of the music of, you know, this grand kind of assembly of people that are coming together to make something happen. And I think it also speaks to what you're talking about process because um, Alicia, I don't know how you feel, but I feel like rehearsal for me is, is, is the time. I never feel like it's rare in rehearsal that I mark things. I, I, I mean, I do mark things sometimes to conserve my energy, conserve my voice, but I, I, or my presence or whatever it is. But I definitely feel like I always want to bring a, a intentionality to the moment um, so I can get it in my body and get it in my spirit. And I definitely see that in this piece that they're, they're probably in a dressing room, it looks like somewhere rehearsing, but you can feel the, the intentionality. Well, yes, because we, I always feel in good performance, what we're rehearsing is the relationship between one another. 
Now, Miss in the yellow and, uh, and, and, and light blue here, Periwinkle, has not memorized. She is holding her music, <laughs> so she has her game plan out. She is still dealing with it, uh, but she is also getting into gesture and this idea that whatever um, uh, Mademoiselle in white is aggressing, that she is shielding from it. Um, she's blocking the light from her face, which is kind of like a big no-no in theater also. So that she's doing this, it doesn't look like the final blocking that she's going to get. It looks really um, natural and raw that she is giving her, um, you know, from the 17th century, the opera like, oh, I may, oh, I may, oh, 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 like this, oh, 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 oh. let me sing you, you have pity for me. Oh, you know, she's giving uh, this kind of pantomime here. And something I loved reading about in the, um, the wonderful catalog for the exhibition was just how, the degree to which Degas had traced and traced and rehearsed and rehearsed and practiced and practiced and memorized the move motions of his hand on paper, mm -hmm. a paintbrush in hand, sketching also, to recreate over and over this draftsman-like Thing where he is looking at old paintings and drawings of history. He's going to the new um, Assyrian exhibition in Paris, 1847. That's one of my favorite facts because you're also watching the colonial world bring back its treasures to these European mm -hmm. countries at the same time. So the richness with which his, and I do mean richness, with which his, his Parisian world is becoming soaked with all of this artifact and artifice and uh, symbolism from the entire Eastern world, mm. Iraq, Iran, Turkey, North India, um, Pakistan. So the intelligence soaked of this whole world also links us back to the classical world that Europe has been so much more um, um, self-conscious in, in sharing and realizing that they get um, information from. But then all these other cultures, um, also older, right, that inform these. So I like the mirror of I thinking about Imani and I in a true performance, giving hand positions that we've learned, I mean, I don't know, right now, the second, I'm looking at a picture of Thelonious Monk playing piano in a photograph, and he's like this, right? He's like this, energy to the piano. I feel like sometimes when I do these things, where am I getting the images from? Okay, things from the 1950s, 1960s, but we're all in a line with one another. Everyone who sees, we are feeding each other these things, and so actually some of this, the idea of playing with strings, playing with a pulled string, getting a note out of a pulled string, I'm really feeling, I'm feeling the Nile River right then. Or I feel, when I do it, I feel like, y'all can't tell me, y'all could put a stamp on it and take the publishing or whatever, but we all know that the idea of an animal's gut pulled and you bling, and sound comes out. That's a universal, that's like some of the oldest stuff there is. So mm -hmm. I think when I see them, I always am so comfortable, Kimberly and Imani. I'm so, I have to be honest, I have never felt like I don't see myself mm -hmm. when I look at anything that is a human form. Mm -hmm. I always see myself. I know who this is. Mm. I might've seen this in an old Chinese exhibition in a museum. This is not, this is not new. Mm. The God did not invent this. Um, Russian ballet did not invent this. This is old. So we pass, we pass this to one another and it gets formalized so that it can be shared. I love that. I mean, it's interesting and we'll get more into the dialogue that we had for Office Magazine, which is kind of um, the inception of our kind of shared dialogue around opera. But it made me think a lot about um, Arthur Jaffa and the way that he talks about empathy in his work and how oftentimes he's in this continued struggle with audiences for them to be able to see themselves in his work, especially because his work is so racialized, where if you're not a black subject going to view the work, oftentimes people feel an extreme distance, 
but there is something in this moment of looking at Degas, which presumably couldn't be further away from our Black American, you know, experiences, and yet there's this gesture that we see ourselves in, and yet there's these moments that we've seen ourselves in. There's an, an ability, and empathy is on offer, and understanding is on offer, because there's so many shared choreographies, mm -hmm. and there's such um, a way in which we can witness ourselves through these images that I think is often kind of left out of the dialogue around art in general, where we have to kind of, yeah, be guests or visitors mm -hmm. instead of participants and um, those of shared experience. Don't you see a little Beyonce then to give him the front? <laughs> and then we say Beyonce because we're in 2020. But then Beyonce, if you asked her, she would say, no, like Paris is burning. And if you ask one of those gentlemen, well, where is this from? They would, they would say, oh, that's from, you know, we, we know. Vogue, they were talking about how they got those from the hieroglyphics. Mm. And some of the foundation of yes. the Vogue comes from, you know, the Nubian hieroglyphics. So what yes. you were saying about it's we're ancient the movements and gestures are shared and they're also ancient even beyond ancient right a native american because also i think we're talking or i said native america because i'm in america i'm in new york but indigenous the people the people the people have a hand the hand is open the hand is closed i mean the hand is front the hand is back i mean it took me a while to understand how, or I should say this, my, my husband is a pianist and he, I heard him tell um, some musicians the other day, he said, well, you know, the room is the instrument. Mm. And I, I known him long enough to know uh, probably what he was referring to in the moment, like the set you make, and it sound comes back at a certain speed, depending on how big the room is or the way the people look or like, looking at this is in an integrated room. Are we listening to Meyerbeer's great masterpiece, L'Africaine, and the, or actually, well, Le Troyen, but anyway, L'Africaine, uh, the African, Zelaika, the, the uh, African central female character, but is she being portrayed by a European woman? And there's just like no other people in the audience who would uh, and everybody's like just that's just where we are right now mm. i'm gonna in harlem tell a story called the little dutch boy and it will just be for a room of black people well that's kind of ironic because the dutchman so not a great i was example. gonna say i was like oh. <laughs> <laughs> have i got it news worked. for you <laughs> yeah, <it worked. laughs> i can talk myself into the into this into the hole and sometimes I get in the hole and somebody's in there but I, I, I recognize him you know what I'm saying but like how great and then rich that is as an experience for us because this is language and we all have been participating mm. Mm. centuries let's look at the second image because I think you know speaking of location we journey in this other painting to a very different setting and scenario oh, yeah where now we're in the orchestra pit with all these white guys. <laughs> and I wonder if we could, we could talk about, I think one, when I was thinking about this image in general, and we haven't looked at this together yet. So this is kind of like a pop, most pop quiz of the images today. Um, but. Oh, I love this one. Thinking about one, everything that goes into it. Like, I think for me in my, my visitorship as a, to the opera is thinking about how big and expansive it is um, and how there needs to be many multiple parts for it, the show to go on. But I wonder specifically looking at this Degas image, what kind of thoughts come to mind or memories or any, any connection that seems interesting? Well, if I can, let me talk about the several protrusions I see visually here. And then maybe that will be a wick if for you and you can go around and light the wicks because first of all this double base so this thing that looks like this black fist with these two this here this double base it's the largest lowest sound in the orchestra i guess there are some drums that maybe would be larger in the back of the percussion but the double bass and the, the double basses uh, traditionally stand during the performances 
So just that Degas perspective that he's choosing is from up and above the back of the standing double bassist, who is in completely the wrong place, I should say. This is like a fantasy Legoland orchestra because these people would not be sitting in those places and be seen, and you'd see the legs of the of the ballot. It's like just kind of he put people where he wanted them to be. And I um, learned through reading that that man in the very front center with the most of his white, um, with his tuxedo and bow tie showing, is Desiree Dio. And he was a great friend of Degas. And he is the first musician, I believe, to have a painting, um, a portrait made of himself in his relationship to the uh, Paris Opera. So that Degas is coming into his paintings of this place and a lifetime of paintings of this place, largely first through this initial relationship and invitation <clears throat> through instrumentalists of the orchestra. Also Degas' father would have musical salon. So he was a banker, but his, his passion in his off hours was bringing musicians into his uh, well-appointed home and having his own musicals uh, hosted in his space. And his son was there. Um, Degas, so he would paint the guests of the salon, but also getting that real privilege. So Kimberly, you're talking about privilege and feeling like you belong, you know. If you, most people walking around, I don't care if they're surgeons or what they are, most people look walking, wouldn't say, oh, that's a bassoon and that's an English horn. That's a viola and that's a violin. Many people just also don't know that. So Degas is a person who is having these instruments and their biology kind of like, um, uh, uh, um, what is this when you cut up a little bug in science class? Dissected in front of him, intimate relationship to the sound, but then also the supreme privilege, which people are still trying to figure out how to market and share properly uh, in this era right now, is how to get the personality of the person playing that instrument translated to an audience so that the audience will become interested not just in this brown wood thing which everyone seems to have but the person playing it and if you get the chance as i did um largely also through jazz and meeting jazz musicians and hearing them talk but then hearing how they talk through this it is like it is it, it's, it's 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 a it makes you glad to be alive it's like meeting the pilot of an airplane and really talking to him and then he gets in the cockpit and the plane just takes off. It's magic to meet the people that make things happen for me. And so you have the double bass. His a thing is here, but he's got this amazing view of his friend and he's painting his friend, Bassoon, not a star of the orchestra traditionally. I called um, the African-American incredible bassoonist, Monica, Ellis, she plays with the uh, woodwind ensemble Imani Wins. I said, Monica, I have a, a bassoonist here. I'm going to send you this picture. Tell me about this guy. And she said, oh, I know that guy. That guy is on every mug at the Juilliard School. He's like on every t-shirt at like, at like uh, uh, orchestral holiday retreat when they, if you can buy some swag from that. She's like, that guy is on the poster, that guy's on the pencil. So Degas immortalized his friend. Mm. And I feel um, maybe very much along with Amani that the number of visual artists uh, and filmmakers we've been, we've been uh, muse for, or we've been invited to participate with, or we've just been caught behind really helps me to feel like what I'm doing matters and will last because what I'm doing has put in the voice of somebody else. When I, when I look at this image, I think of the expense of mounting um, mm. works that are labeled things like opera, um, especially as a person who's trying to finance my works right now and um, learning the politics of what it means to call something opera um, even in this century 
um, learning the politics of the opera houses, which don't have, they're not as multicultural apparently. Um, and so that means as new opera maker, as a composer, you, if you want to get your work mounted with a, a formal opera house, um, you may not have the privilege to embody the, the, the artists who perform your work. You may not get to have them be racialized in the way that you want them to be, um, mm -hmm. which, which means that there could be challenges with um, getting opera that, by Black people or other, other ethnicities that aren't white. So I think of that, I also think of, uh, so for me in that way, um, for the opera that I'm working on, the Hush Arbor opera that's dealing with depth and liminality, but, kind of, but, but using this framework of a black American gathering called the Hush Arbors, um, I'm creating my own ensemble and I'm working in the tradition of more like a Bernice Johnson Regan or Toshi Regan, the operas they did with Robert Wilson, where they, they will create an ensemble or Robert Ashley, the temporary, uh, um, composer, who American composer who um, would also create his own ensembles, and so that's that's the tradition I'm in because I don't feel like I don't know if I can show up at an opera house and have uh, the type of embodiment I want, um, given the cost to do theatrical works in general, but particularly when you're mixing visual music, um, sound, and all these other kind of inter interdisciplinary um, moments. I think it's worth saying that this year, 2020, the African-American composer Anthony Davis won the Pulitzer Prize yeah. in opera composition for his work, Central Park Five. So we have just seen in a hundred years, 150 years, these impossible stories about, okay, a made up war between Ethiopia and Egypt. There was a real war in, in the 1870s, but um, the opera is, is not about that war. The opera is, the Aida is written about um, a war that was made up in a, a story so that they could make an opera libretto. We come from being fantasized, and I mean fantasized like this word I learned, phantasmagorical, PH, mm -hmm. fanta like magic Africans and magic black people of noble and magical past, but into like these five men who really lived an epic saga of the American justice system and survived. And so these uh, stories, they survived because of it and they were penalized under it at the same time. And that kind of wrestle is exactly the type of story that opera needs. That's what it is. I would just say Porgy and Bess, you know, was also a fictionalized tale based on um, a newspaper clipping about, uh, about a man um, who, <laughs> you know, has a moment of brutality, but everything else about it is a complete uh, fiction so that they can they being composers and librettists can pour into it the people that they want it to be so that they can manipulate like puppets into this opera. You're seeing these legs of these women and this beautiful crinoline that like horsehair skirts and catching the light and creating this thing that we see what we wanna see. Do we wanna jump in there or are we frightened by them? Are these like kicking horses? They're gonna like have vengeance and tell our deep secrets to our wives type women or these like women to bring out in the evening and they they tell us beautiful poetry and they also play the piano and they enrich our lives like we don't really know what the seduction of that light on them and it gets really caught in the midsection of the crinoline but I just say like that's about the viewer putting this thing on top of them and so I think it feels really good with what's going on in opera um always is that people feel the stories that composers are choosing are really the stories that are the best stories to tell that are worth telling mm. and that they become part of the canon of great fable and american opera needs to be looking at american stories so that it can or continue to do so so that it can build itself up in the canon of all opera, 
And I'm just very proud of the moment. Mm. And I feel like it's also important to disrupt the canon too, while we're building and we're adding to it to disrupt um, who gets to be in the canon, who gets to tell the stories, um, who gets to um, compose or write a libretto about whatever they want to. And some of the problems we've seen in the past um, where people will take on stories that may not be theirs to tell and create, as you said, fantasy, um, phantasmic people or minstrel shows or all these other ways in which, um, or Aida, you talked about as um, a fake war. So I feel like it's important now that more opera makers or people who are claiming the term opera are writing from their actual point of view, their actual for real cultural perspective, not an imagined or placed upon cultural perspective. And I feel like that's important to disrupt um, what we think of as the canon, what we think of as um, history, you know, mm -hmm. to problematize it, which I'm excited that we're, we're a part of that. We and our other comrades who are creating these new works um, from our perspectives. I think it's important. Um, yeah, I think it's very important, especially during these days. What, what gives me a lot of hope is that the weaponry of laying on the fantasy Black people just on the flip side of the hand is actually using the way that opera has always been the laying on on top of an old story. So that there are so many fables, tales, mythologies that composers will take and they put whatever they want on it. They will make uh, Herod a tenor, they will make Herod a baritone. They do what they want to do and then, or like Dr. or Faustus, German tale. The real difference is that in an old story like Dr. Faust is a man sells his soul to the devil kind of opera, there's many of those. Uh, also, Robert Le Diablo, Diablo, Robert the, with the um, uh, debut of Paris Opera. But it's like there were Germans singing their folk tale to orchestra. Germans singing, German comp composers writing, Germans playing in the pit. This is the thing that if I was gonna speak on it in a racialized way coming out of, from what Imani is saying, with what is dripping from her, for me to say, what I feel invited to say, is that we are just looking for some little itty bitty stuff that already been happened in 1766, which is that somebody took a story, somebody took a story telling that story and then that person their descendants were hired to perform that story in an audience where people also who are descendants were allowed to sit in the front row of the theater integrated full space telling their own playing their own story also just because you play la boheme don't mean then you can't play Italian opera, French opera, German opera. No, 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 no. It means I want to ever be able to do this. And then I want to carry on in my career going from art, from, uh, from geography to geography, tongue to tongue, just like any other artist. And that's the flexibility that I could say, forget as a performer, just as an audience member that I've been looking for. I've been waiting for an opera company uh, with um, the funding to present opera full orchestra, fully rehearsed with ballet, full set in a, a stable um, theatrical environment with its full supports and privileges and benefits um, and wonderful musicians also well compensated. I've just been looking for like a season of that that turns into five seasons of that, that just turns into a thing I can go do. <laughs> just that. I, I mean, I'm so glad you said that because that's what I was curious about is just especially in the context of the history of opera, we had a dialogue the other day and it was news to me, uh, you know, in my, my visitorship, but the ways in which opera as a form has constantly been um, one that has an incredible tradition of appropriation and an incredible tradition of um, mixing and matching and, you know, 
maybe surprising intersections of identity or sounds or storytelling. And there's um, a word I'm forgetting, but just thinking about like this mixiness that opera comes with that a lot of people wouldn't know. Like even the other day I was having a conversation with a young person who was like, oh, this conversation about Degas feels really different than other museum programs. And I was like, why is that different? Like, is it because we're black women talking about Degas and maybe you've never seen black women do that? But what we're doing is we're three people who are very interested in this field having a dialogue. And that's like the most boring type of museum program, actually. <laughs> um, so what, what is it that, you know, now suddenly makes it either impossible or seemingly impossible for there to be opera, like I, the last opera I saw was the Maplethorpe Opera. Um, what makes those types of operas an impossibility where in the 1700s, like that's not groundbreaking, you know, for, for different cultures to be responding to similar stories in their own tune. Mm -hmm. Well, I love what you're saying and there's, certain realities that make it easier for me to talk about in terms of being a patron of the arts. A little bit easier for me to talk about in terms of being a producer of uh, concert projects. Um, because I don't want to speak um, I don't want to speak I think that there's been so much singing, so much extraordinary singing that I have bought a ticket to see, that you know something's up when you don't see that little group of people then in the next thing. Why aren't they in the next thing? I mean, we're all here. There's not a ticket to be found, sold out, no call. What is this airing out? And I do mean as in like, we got to open all the windows and just air it out until the next. What is this? I've, I've been exposed to theories, um, not theories, like people who produce um, multi-million dollar work tell you, well, it's just really also the feeling that there's not enough of an audience so that you're corralling the audience so that you make the audience wait. So that when you do go on sell tickets, there's going to be this and you can make sure that you make money. But I, I just, I just laugh at that because it's so silly. And I think that a lot of the things that make the work so expensive would be fine if more practitioners didn't understand that that's the only part, that's the only level of participation they could have in their art form. It's just like, you wanna be in a feature film? You wanna be the next James Bond? Okay, that's a rare opportunity. But if you want to run and be in cinema and be strong, there are more ways and there are more people trying to make that work who have slightly less they can offer people. But the intelligence, the integrity, and the available materials are oftentimes, if not a little bit better, they're extraordinarily more useful for you in the rest of your life because all those people are also pulling for you in the rest of your life. And I, I just feel so expressed and happy. I mean, I'm not in so many things where people go, oh, I've heard of that. <laughs> I've heard someone try to hurt my feelings and say, when they knew I was listening, but they didn't, you know, when they said, um, well, she's only been in one thing. I beg your pardon. I've been in one thing you've heard of because that's how limited your world is. And you only acknowledge things in this little witty witty bitty box. Whereas I'm like, <laughs> mm -hmm. no, no, honey. And also the privilege of understanding the real world of art, not the one given to you in a box and you have to sign a contract and be picked out of a thousand people. That's a great box. I don't know a lot about that box, but I know about the place where that box came from, mm. right? So, it's like I walk it around in this palace of goods, a palace, a palace of goods. And so many of the participants in the palace have their own 
wherewithal because they're a self-producing housekeeper, a self-producing gardener, a self-producing window washer. So I'm walking around in the house making relationships with people who make this house run. And don't trip and slip on the floor that was just waxed because the self-producing janitor or butler will run up to you, pick you up, dust off your knee, help you on your way. I have had so much help. It's so hard to express to people how when you look like you're in a lonely place, it's mm. so full and so much compassion for what you like really going through. And what I'm not going through, it's like dealing with these people or dealing, I don't have any people I'm really dealing with. It's more like, how do I adjust my face so that I can make someone believe this thing? I, I wanna give them, this. I wanna do that. Like those are my problems, right? Mm -hmm. I'm up all night. How can I, how can I ever do my hands so that Amy will be like, Alicia, you're not clawing this song. We're going to caress this song. <laughs> like I'm worried about it because I want to please her because I want my work to be good. Those are my problems. Am I smart enough to talk to Amani and Kimberly at the museum? That's like, I did not sleep last night. Those are my problems. I will not rail in an argument with somebody to ask them to do what I can do right now. I decided a decade ago, I would never be in that conversation. I would only be in a conversation about how can we make this better? And I tell you, people want their work to be better. Mm -hmm. It's hard, but they want that too. And I've learned how to do it in ways slowly and painfully. Learn how to do it in ways where by the end of the experience, people just turn around and be like, damn, that was pretty good. And that's now what I'm looking for. Yeah, I think it, I think it um, has a lot, I think it has a lot to do with um, taking up space and mm. giving the permission to feel entitled to take up space and to claim, make claim, um, and to put your own um, intention, like we talked about earlier, infuse it with your own intentionality to create um, the worlds that you want to see. And I feel like, um, I think all three of us do that in various ways in you know, our careers and our lives, which for me, my life and my career, all seems kind of swirled in. Um, yeah, so I think that's, that's an important point. And what you're talking about, wanting to make it better, it, it's, so, it's such a gift to be able to feel like you have the time to work on something, to develop it and to feel like um, that is the work, you know? But living in a world where art is, you know, funded by institutions that may say yes, or, um, you know, maybe a grant if you can get that, or fellowships, it can, it can put the strain on you because you, you, you wanna stay self-producing, but you also wanna feel like you have um, access to bring it to larger spaces. But there is something very punk about all of us, I think. I feel like all of us take up space and just DIY it when people come. It's like we make the space we want and then people show up. But what the, the part what you're talking about, what I intuited from what you were saying is that the audience is always there. You know, um, it may not be the traditional audience, quote unquote, but it does, it make, they're no less worthy, you know, who comes mm. to engage with us in various ways, um, they are an audience. And they may not be the audience that's always catered to, but it does not take away from the power and the com communion that we garner um, from placing our work before them to say, here, my humble offering. Say that. Yeah. <laughs> say that. Because I don't think yes. people hear that enough, especially when talking about whether it's Degas or Gershwin, like people don't understand that that's not the only arena in which people operate. That is not the only space that we create our art and nor do we need everyone's space to make the art that we make, period. Mm -hmm. Like this moment of institutions, you know, conceding to us in these mm -hmm. ways is just like one, we've been doing it without y'all this whole time this whole time we have had to make a way out of no way because you were not 
here for us. You are colonial institutions. That's how you were built. This is no surprise to any of us. I don't care what letter you use with Glenn Ligon or Kara Walker's image. We know who you are. We've known who you are this whole time. That said, another thing that we all share in this group is an understanding that it is also important to be juried alongside our peers. Yes. Also important for Imani to have the resources to put on the biggest, baddest opera that you want, right? It is important for Alicia to have so many options that then she then is able to choose to do the self-produced pieces or does the big you know, dollar production so then you can do a year or two years of self-produce or be the producer, right? Um, those are the decisions that we constantly have to be making just by virtue of our position in the world. But I don't think people get that. It's always like, I've had so many conversations in the last week about, you know, what can I do with my privilege to give to you? Like, uh -uh. like I don't, I don't need that. Like I have people in my life, Amani being one of them, like most likely to text me and be like, are you drinking water? Um, <laughs> That to me is the greatest resource and the greatest privilege that anyone is extending to me, not the rest of this. Um, and I, I, I really, sorry, I'm like erupting and out of moderator mode, but like, Good, I do it. feel like that point can't be drilled home enough. And is yeah. like, you know, on the eve of, or I don't even know what day it is, but Juneteenth coming up and Freedom Day and thinking about, you know, what it means to have false emancipations, so many false emancipations as a people you can't give us our freedom. You can't give it to us because we can't yes. trust you with that. You know, that's because right. in the same way that you can give us our freedom, you can rescind it. And that's not the terms that we're working on anymore. That is not the position that we're in, especially that's not right. with the tools of art and the tools of liberation that we have for ourselves, the tools of care, the, the tools of, of, you know, or the infrastructures that we build for mourning. Like those aren't on offer to everyone. Degas did not get an invitation from Paris Opera to come make us world famous forever and ever. <laughs> he went with his friend because his friend said, look, get, catch me like this. I mean, that's what happened. So I take inspiration from let's leaders, okay? Cultural leaders like you, Kimberly, like you, Imani. I saw Imani perform downtown when I was in college. I will never forget the aura with which I saw her. Also, she was kind of backlit. So when I say aura, I mean aura. And I never knew I would ever meet her. Why do you go to a concert and you're a little tweet and then you go and you see a goddess and you think you're gonna meet them or be in any kind of, and you're studying your personal songs and paying attention and trying your hardest. You know, I was okay. But I just, I just have to say, like, I think part of the lie that gets told, how I interpret what you say, is that the lie is that anybody else got in any other kind of way. Only one, there's only going to be one Verity. And there's only going to be one Wagner. There's only going to be one Judith Jameson. There's only going to be one Alvin Ailey. Can you even imagine? And they're around, so we should call them and ask. But like, then if you want to be Ron Brown, then what do you do? You just say, well, there was an Alvin Ailey. No, mm -hmm. you make your company. Mm -hmm. You'd be Camille Brown and say, well, there's a Ron Brown and there's an Alvin Ailey. What am I going to do? Oh, no, madams. <laughs> there's so much love. I just wish I could communicate to more people that, in fact, when we've been trained to think there's so little, there can only be one. There's only be one. There's only be one. It's just going to be one. Then you get in this mindset and your radar, you're looking out and looking at ones who might take what you, what they, you think you have. But when you get in this other place, you just pull, pick a flower and another flower pops up. That's how it feels. Yeah. To me. I think. And this, tell it, Amani. No, I was just going to, I'm amening, amening you. Um, I think it's so important to have a, a practice of, of, of clarity, whether that be through meditation, prayer, sitting still, whatever it is, so that you can um, figure out what your purpose is. Because mm -hmm. as you're saying, there's only one, all of us are only one, and we all have um, space to take up. We all have space to share. And 
it takes time to get clear about what your ritual is, your personal ritual, because um, it was it was a, a delight when I got the invitation to be in this conversation with Kimberly and Alicia. It was a delight. Yes was bubbling over my yes, please was really the response because I feel like it's part of my ritual to be in conversation with y'all. And even given what's going on in the world between the plan pandemic and the global Black Lives Matter movement and everything that's going on, it was still a part of my ritual to show up here today to be present um, in this conversation because uh, I trust I trust your rituals. I trust your intention and your meditation. I think it's um, I think it's a, I think the pandemic has taught us that too that we have to get clear and clear about what is our purposes. Why are we doing what we're doing? Um, who are we being? Who are we bringing in? And um, we have that power. And I love what you were talking about, Kimberly, earlier, that no one is taking our freedom. No one is giving us our freedom. We, we are free, period, the end. And we take up space and we create um, scenarios so that is evident to ourselves and to anyone else who, who happens to, to look, but first of all, to ourselves. And I feel like that's what we are mm -hmm. trying to do with our cultural production, be it our books, or our, our operas or whatever. We're just, we're taking up space and saying, I am here. Yes. The end, period. Yeah. And that the here that we are in matters. Because yes. I think oftentimes, yeah, even, even, even the beginning of our conversation and about being mm -hmm. visitors and even thinking about what Jason was saying about the room being the instrument, like, mm -hmm there has to be a more profound respect that we all have for ourselves and where we are in relationship to that and that groundedness. Mm -hmm. um, because I think it's important to move aspirationally. None of us would be on this call if we didn't aspire to be more and, you know, in contact with each other and in some ways like each other. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there has to be like the now, the here, the where we are. Um, and without a respect for that, you'll be profoundly lost. You know, you'll be profoundly lost in, you know, finding yourself, especially in relationship to a museological experience. Like I've had so many days of going to see an exhibition and unsure of why I ever went there. Like I went to see this Lee Krasner show at the Barbican. Or was it the Barbican? Yeah, it was at the Barbican. And I thought I liked Lee Krasner. I thought I needed to like Lee Krasner. I thought I wanted to like Lee Krasner because she is an underserved painter who is so much cooler than Jackson Pollock. And I felt so like, we need to be checking for the wise. I got to that show, I was like, this show is bad. Right. I left, I was hungry, I was tired. But I felt like I had to be there for some other reason other than, you know, mm -hmm. like a personally driven force. There was a performance mm -hmm. that I was in around something that like I naturally love to do and get joy out of. Um, and I think it's important for all of us to be in a constant state, a constant state of reorientation. I love it. I feel, I feel, do you all feel like, I don't know if it's because I'm looking at all violet, purple, indigo women, <laughs> but I'm, <laughs> I have to, I have to tell you I, my dress, I can't show it. It's too short, but my dress um, that I'm wearing has crinoline in it, which I wore. Uh, out, of, out of regard for the ballerinas who sacrificed their lives and their backs for the opera. Um, God bless them, my favorite humans. My son is a dancer, had I mentioned. Also, I'm in front of a photograph by the late Fikre Gebreyesus, photographer and painter. And oh, Imani, wow. he gave us this at a party at his house, in a salon, essentially, the other people were writers and uh, academics and artists at a party. He gave us, he said, oh, I have something for you. I don't know what we said that made him think, oh, I have something. It's gonna come home with these people today. He gave us this. This is my teacher, me and Shirley Verrett at her um, book party. And my mother edited her, her biography and Shirley Verrett sang L'Africaine. Wow. And then the other picture, that I dropped is uh, Warren Wilson, who is my, my coach. He's also passed on. And he was Shirley Verrett's accompanist around the world. And uh, by the time I'm meeting them, you know, they had already been around the world, met opera star, La Scala, everything. 
um, singing the great repertoire of the world. And it, but he tells a story about when they took a tour in the deep south and he said, oh, well, I'm just going to get a drink of water. And he gets up and he goes to the whites only water fountain. And Shirley says, where are you going? And he says, well, I just want to see what white water tastes like. And that is like where I'm basically coming from. That it's so many piles of lies that you might as well, and I, and I don't mean told to black people, I mean also lies told to white people about where they are. It's just a completely um, wonderful way to be miserable, to eat the lies for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. That's why people are miserable, eating lies. That's what gives you that bellyache of that kind of misery is because it's not true. Your body's trying to digest it, it's not true. Believe me, if you break your arm, it hurts, but it's not the same as being miserable because no one's like stepping on your arm still. You just get it healed. It just hurts. Pain and misery are not the same thing. And we're being fed a gruel of misery. I just kind of, I just refuse. So I have to get to where I could get to till I don't feel that. It doesn't matter where it is. And I've been pushed into a community of healers and geniuses and writers and visual people. And we also own uh, Warren's piano. When he passed, his family uh, sold it to us and we had it reworked. And you know, I don't know why, but it's just about black property, mm. right? It's just like, I don't know where it would go in the world, but let's just, let's just, what, well, what is money for? Why are we working so hard? What's money for? No, that's what money is for. So we have black land here. We live in an apartment building, but our black land is like where this piano sits. And because I regard it that way, that's what it is. And when I wake up in the morning, I could get myself hype y'all, but this is, this makes me feel good. I got to use this for church for all week. Cause I've been so upset beyond upset. This is black earth in my house. This is where I have to go. And it's crazy where, when you have a piece that you feel belongs to you, how many people of like all races can come over and enjoy your little piece of black earth with you. And it's no problem. And you can tell them, I am worried about you or I am worried about me today. I feel like when you have situated yourself in a certain kind of unconscious blackness, not, uh, not unconscious, well, unconscious and not self-conscious blackness, and you just speak, it's surprising how many people are like, can actually hear that. Mm. You think you're gonna offend them, give them the worst day of your life. No, you're not because you've been practicing in that community or in that institution. If you walk in, I, I have Carnegie Hall meeting. I walked into that first meeting. I'm pretty sure I wore my black, black is beautiful t-shirt from Studio Museum in Harlem under a white thing. Cause I was just like, anybody who can't see the word black is beautiful in a meeting should not be or stay in the room. Um, they just listened to us talk about what, how we wanted to tell the story of the great migration with music and like violins and the best conductor we could think of who was Tanya Leon, who is a national treasure. I, I, you know, you just have to walk in as you are. If you sell a bill that you think people want here or a bill that you ain't, you won't be in trouble on opening night because you've sold all these things that you don't really have in your bag. Mm -hmm. And I try to lean always on, no, I could wake up in the morning and do this. Look, ooh, it may not be great on the worst day, but on the best day, you're going to see life. Or as Warren used to say, oh, it made me see Jesus. You may not catch that resonance. Your jaw may be too tight. Tongue may be too tight. You didn't get low enough. The, uh, the collarbone was all nutted up with all kind of ribs and things jamming in. You're not low in your breath. You had indigestion. You're pulling up your solar plexus. Nothing will move. Nothing will, you can't like, you just can't get right. But if you're leading with yourself, sometimes what you can also offer, terrible day allergies, whatever you have, I get those. When you show up, they are getting a person fighting through work. And so if your stories don't have some parallel to a world of fight, then you're in trouble if you wanna ever not have a perfect day. And I think for me, like I've tried to follow the performances where 
oh my God, Imani, do you remember that day? There was just that, it was like Trayvon Martin. And I, I have never left a theater. I had to leave the theater during the rehearsal. Because I present myself like, well, I'm here and I'm going to sing this and you can show whatever you want and I'm going to do this. I'm still going to do this pretty, pretty E flat. And it just, I had reached my limit. And and that's the real world. So like when the real world is the limit that you can't deal with to make the art that you want to make, it's not in terms of the real world. The real world does not need us to sing a song. But in terms of the business of singing a song, the real world should go right into your back, right into your pocket, right into the backpack. It's like, now this is my homework for tonight. Whatever I have to do. And those are the tools. And the tools are the technique. The tools is the technique because you might have to heal yourself the whole show. And I, mm -hmm. the artists I love to read about are the ones who like, you get their biography and they're just telling you the times. Oh, I was kidnapped and I was, <laughs> was just, had to be here in this country and the people, uh, I'm thinking of Eartha Kitt's autobiography. I mean, she just lived a lot of my work, but she would get up, oh my God, you read about like little Judy Garland and things. Like, didn't, how can you go through life and not feel the humanity of these great artists who knowingly or unknowingly were laying on the railroad tracks to give us these little songs. And then how can that not, when you wake up, be like, you know what? I have people. If I don't have people, go find you some people. Everybody has people. You have, but you have to find them. They don't just come. Kimberly, you called me. I would never talk about any of these things. Why would I? but I'm here for it. I just really appreciate, I never will get tired of that. Mm. You cannot invite yourself to the rest of your life. You have to be invited and then you have to show up. That's what it is. You mm -hmm. get some tools so you can stay there every day. Mm -hmm. I love it. And I know that we have to wrap soon. Um, yeah. And oh, this is such a gift. Um, it just makes me think so much of um, the train ride that Imani and I had in Florence and just like the ridiculous reason that we came together and we were, you know, it was like the most, like, I hate magical black girl, but it was truly black girl magic. Um, we were coming from Venice, heading to Florence and we'd met in Venice and I met Imani and was just like, who is, or we were going from Florence to Venice or something. I was, like, Venice, who, yeah. I was like, who is this woman who is taking photos of everyone <laughs> and so loud and just covered in fabric and so you know it was just everything was so big and you know and I was at the time because it was you know years ago I was so like like I don't know people like this this isn't my people I don't and then we sat on that train ride and the love and attention and openness that was extended in that moment I was like I'm so glad that she's my people you know like I need more people like this person and I feel like to be able to reconvene again in this way and Alicia to be able to connect with you in this way, um, especially in a moment like this one, that is just one of ex like unconscionable sadness mm -hmm. and that we could be together is just such an incredible honor. And so I thank you both for being available for this dialogue. I thank everyone who helped to put this program together um, and I hope yeah, I hope that we all keep finding our people. Yes. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.